Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this episode is brought to you, well, it's brought to you by you, and also by Lottie and Aaron, but we'll get to that in a minute. So we just hit 2,000 likes on Facebook. So as promised, today I'm releasing a members-only episode. Now, we had a vote on Facebook for which one to release, and the episode on the Druids was the most popular. That surprised me since it was from the early days when I was pretty new to this and still use the dreaded word whatnot so much that listener Sean has turned it into a drinking game. Something that I don't endorse, but I find hilarious. Anyway, so as luck would have it, that episode, the Druid episode, not the Whatnot episode, was also the choice of member and birthday girl Lottie. On a related note, there have been requests on Facebook for me to sing, so you would think that a birthday and a Facebook milestone would be the perfect opportunity for that. But instead, your birthday slash Facebook present is that I'm not going to sing. Trust me, everybody at the karaoke bar would agree that it is much better this way. So Lottie, happy birthday from me, Kerouac, and your awfully nice husband, Aaron. I hope you have a great one, and let's get on with the show. So we're going to talk today about druids. And no, we're not going to be talking today about the people who gather at Stonehenge every solstice in white robes blowing a ram's horn. I mean, it all looks like a lot of fun, but those people aren't really following an ancient druidic religion. First, because Stonehenge was built before the rise of Celtic culture and before the emergence of Druidism. And second, because Druidism is dead. Modern Druidism is no more ancient than modern Wiccanism. And while I'm irritating people, I might as well go the full nine. So, St. Patrick? Yeah, he wasn't Irish. Uh, Not at all. And actually, I'm not done yet. There's a good chance that the short kilt, also known as the walking kilt, what most people traditionally think of as a kilt when you say kilt, yeah, that was probably invented in the 1700s by an English industrialist named Thomas Rawlinson, who tried to make the plaid kilt more practical. Of course, some dispute this, which should surprise no one since kilts are so fashionably Scottish. But I agree with Hugh Trevor Roper. He amusingly commented that kilts and tartans are about as authentic as Disneyland. And that does have a great deal of merit. While there may be some argument over whether or not Rawlinson himself invented the short kilt or merely recognized its utility and mandated its widespread use in his workplace... The modern short kilt was likely an 18th century invention, and it was certainly no older than the 17th century. And while tartans have existed in Europe and Asia for about 3,000 years, many of the clan tartans we know today were likely invented in the lowlands for profit. And what about bagpipes? I mean, we all love bagpipes, and they're as Scottish as um, a very Scottish thing. Well, bagpipes were invented in the Middle East, actually. And chances are that if it wasn't for the British Army and the enthusiasm of Queen Victoria, they probably wouldn't be nearly as popular as they are today. But look, I'm not saying that bagpipes, tartans, and short kilts are bad. If you want to wear a short kilt, more power to you. I'm just saying that it's only marginally older than the Utila kilt. Alright, so now I've alienated most everybody, so hopefully people who are fans of the Druidic religion as it's been revived aren't going to feel alone and picked on. You've all just been thrown over the barrel. So let's get back to Druids. The real Druids, not the white robe Druids. So let's start with the name, Druid. 
There are many discussions of what the name meant and how it might have been originally pronounced, how it was morphed over the years through various translations, and whether it was a Celtic word or a word that was applied to the Celts by historians from the Mediterranean and the like. Like much of this period, it seems like everyone has a theory. That's largely because most of what we know was actually derived from Posidonios, a 2nd century BC Greek writer. And to make matters worse, we don't have all his writings. Some were lost. Now that's not the end of the world, because we've been able to piece together some of what's missing through references made in the works of others. And much of that, by the way, is thanks to the Alexandrian school, which, instead of relying on first-hand experience like many of their contemporaries, gathered and cited sources in an attempt to synthesize history rather than just going out and talking to people and then writing down what they're saying. And many of the lost texts of history are known thanks to the Alexandrian school. Anyway, so thanks to primarily secondary sources, we're able to get a picture of what the Druids were like, but that picture is cloudy and heavily subjected to interpretation. Anyway, back to the word Druid and what it might have meant. A rather plausible etymological explanation for the word is that it is a combination of the root drus, which meant oak, and wid, which translated to knowledge. Oak knowledge. Oak knowledge? That might seem strange, actually, until you look at how important trees were to the Celts and the Druids. There are plenty of references to the sacred oak groves of the Druids and whatnot, and a little while later in this episode, I'll tell you about an account of a Druidic religious site. But before we get there, oak. So if you know only one thing about Druids, you probably know about, well, you probably know about beards and robes. But if you only knew two things about druids, you probably knew also about their love of trees. Trees were really important, and actually they continued to be important to the Celts long after druidism became outlawed. Take Ogham, for example. Ogham is the native written language of Celtic Ireland. Ogham, or Tree Ogham as some call it, took its name from the god Ogmios, and was carved into the trunk and branches of trees, following the natural path of the branches. So instead of being read left to right on a flat geometric slab or page, it would follow the flow of the tree. And frankly, I think that's incredible. But what makes Ogham important for this story is how it was taught. When you learned English, you probably went through the same steps that I did. A is for apple, B is for bear, C is for cat and so on and so forth. Well, if you were learning Ogham, you'd do something very similar, but it wouldn't use apples, bears, and cats. You'd use trees. Ogham has 18 letters, and each corresponds to a tree. A is for elm or elm. B is for beth or birch. C is for coal, hazel. D is for darak, oak. So even in matters of linguistic education... Even long after Druidism was outlawed, trees were central to Celtic life. In fact, they were simply central to the hierarchy of life, with the mighty oak reigning above all others. So those with oak knowledge, the Druids, would be held in high esteem. It seems that they had other names, though, in addition to Druid. There are references in history to the Celts of Gaul and the Galatians as having both Druids and Semnotheoi. But that was probably a synonym for druid. 
And incidentally, semnotheoi is a Greek word that translates to revered gods. And while we're on the subject of names, what would you call a female druid? That's not a joke, by the way. Um, it's an actual question. Well, according to several Greek sources, it seems that you would call them dryades or dryads. And fans of fantasy literature and fantasy films and whatnot are probably going, Oh my god, dryads, really? And I think that you'll find that all sorts of parts of druidism still survive today in various myths, legends, and the like. So what were these druids like? Well, according to Caesar, they were highly organized, much like their trees. And there was one head druid who would rise through meritocracy and general election, or he would rise through battle. But regardless of how he rose, there would be one head druid who would command an immense amount of power. But even if you weren't the head druid, you were just some rank-and-file druid, you know, a backbencher that even his own mother doesn't know his name. If you were a druid, you were still a cut above the rest. For example, you would never have to pay taxes. You would never have to serve in the military. You were essentially aristocratic. You were above the law. But maybe you earned that right. After all, druids trained for as much as 20 years. And all the lessons they had would have involved history, religion, songs, and all matter of other things. So they were basically the repositories of all Celtic knowledge. And actually, something that's kind of cool is the way they would have taught this information would have also had religious import. According to Laertius, the druids taught in triads. Things coming in threes seems as important to the druids as trees. Many of the lessons that we have records of have three parts. For example, here's a lesson for you. Honor the gods, do no evil, practice bravery. See, one, two, three. There were even three separate intellectual castes, druids, bards, and vates. Even the sacrifices we found were killed in three ways. For example, uh, Lindau Man was first struck on the head, then he was strangled, then he had his throat cut. So 20 years of learning triads. Speaking as someone who's gone through 19 years of school, I can tell you that's a tremendous amount of training. And considering that they had shorter lifespans than we enjoy, it was even more significant. So maybe they're in the tax benefit. But the point is, that's a hell of a lot of training. And what was it for? What exactly did they provide to society to merit all that preparation and those special benefits? Well, the Druids were incredibly powerful figures in society. They were a largely independent group, unaffiliated with a particular tribe. They moved from place to place freely, and that made them very useful for arbitrating conflicts, settling cases, and ending wars. Even Caesar found them to be useful, though dangerous, as objective judges. In the early days, it's said that they could even walk into the middle of a battle and make it stop. Like they would walk right there, right in the middle, and say, Hey, knock it off! And the warriors would stop. That's a hell of a lot of power, and it's very useful. But in addition to being mediators on steroids, they were also the keepers of Celtic histories and tales, which also gave them a tremendous amount of weight in society. After all, they were the only ones who knew the old tales. In legal terms, they were the only ones who knew precedents. And luckily for them, none of the information they held was allowed to be written down, which meant that their power was theirs alone. They were supreme amongst the intelligentsia. But as I said before, they weren't alone. There were also the bards, who were singers and poets. 
There were the Vates, who were later called Fili in Ireland, who were in charge of interpreting sacrifices and natural philosophy. But amongst these groups, the Druids were the main movers and shakers. And as I mentioned before, there was a hierarchy. And they could travel through Celtic lands to various tribes without any issue whatsoever. And they could demand obedience from the Celts, even from armies in the field. Imagine the power they would have had if they coordinated and worked together. Well, it turns out they did. For example, every year the Druids held a large gathering at Carnute, which was the center of Gaul, roughly in the Orleans area, and organized. Wait, Gaul? So does that mean that Gaul was the center of Druidic life? Well, probably not. It was probably a major bastion of Celtic life, but according to Caesar, Druidism was founded in Britannia. Apparently, the most devout of Celts traveled to Britannia, so perhaps there were even Druidic colleges there. It would make sense, since we know that Innes Mon, also known as Anglesey, was a major Druidic site. Anyway, back to the important stuff. Oaks. So oak and mistletoe were first mentioned by Pliny, who lived amongst the Celts in the Po Valley. He said that anything growing on the oaks of the grove was divinely sent. He also gave us this tale, which is probably a load of bullshit, but I'll tell you what he told us. So mistletoe was gathered on the sixth day of the moon, and while it was gathered, the druids would dress in white and cut it down with a gold hook, then carry the mistletoe on a white cloth and sacrifice two white bulls during the ceremony. And any barren woman who drank the concoction which was made with this sacred mistletoe would be cured and have a child. Doesn't that sound like something out of a King Arthur legend? All that white and, you know, mistletoe and these white bulls and golden hooks and whatnot. So, yeah. Frankly, I think that what Pliny was telling us was basically a huge load of sacrificial white bullshit. Now, on the flip side of history, and likely just as exaggerated, is what Caesar wrote of the Celtic holy sites. He wrote that they found a Celtic shrine in 49 BC while cutting timber for siege machines in Marseille. So before I tell you this, imagine a Druidic shrine right now, if you will. Does it look like a sylvan dell? An open field surrounded by ancient trees? Maybe with a spring and some wildlife drinking from it? The grass is dappled by light filtered through oak trees? Basically, it sounds like a great place for a picnic. And that's how I imagined Druidic shrines when I was a kid. But it's not what Caesar reported seeing. Here's what he says he saw. It was dark and gloomy, thanks to the branches of the trees being interlaced to block out the sun. The water flowed from an unseen spring, so the spring was there. And in the middle, there were a number of altars with human body parts and entrails heaped upon them. Upon every tree there seemed to be traces of blood, and upon every stump there were images, probably faces, carved into them. There was no trace of wildlife, and some of the axemen claimed that the trees moved without reason. Now this story was, in all likelihood, political, and could also be a bunch of white sacrificial bullshit. On the other hand, maybe those axemen accidentally found what happened to those who angered the Celts. After all, if the tales of Boudicca are to be believed, the Celts weren't above ritualistic killing. But was it human sacrifice? 
It's hard to say. We're pretty sure that the Druids did some human sacrifice, since we have Lindau Man, for example. But it also seems that he was probably a willing participant and part of the upper class. Maybe only Druids allowed themselves to be sacrificed. Who knows? Pliny claims that it was bulls that were sacrificed, and actually the symbol of the bull remained potent in Celtic life until around the 17th century, so maybe it was bulls and not people. Maybe it was bull entrails on those altars. Or maybe it was people. And then as time went on and the Celts became less extreme, it became bulls. Who knows? I'm inclined to think that the Druids were probably not as terrifying as the Romans would have us believe but rather their habits had been exaggerated to give a reason for wiping them out. And that was all for political purposes. Since they kept stirring up trouble in Gaul, and the Romans still remembered when the angry Celts of Gaul sacked their eternal city. But while I'm not inclined to believe everything the Romans say about the Celts, I'm also not inclined to believe Pliny's idyllic view of a Druidic shrine and ceremony. I can't explain why I'm not buying it. I can just tell you that there's something about it that doesn't sit right with me. I think Pliny was probably editing what he was saying, or he was taken to basically a show ritual. There's just something about it that doesn't quite sit right to me. But on the other hand, I I do think that the Romans were exaggerating things, or maybe they just misunderstood it. I mean, imagine if a Roman walked into a modern Catholic church, they'd probably be horrified to find a bunch of people sitting there drinking blood and eating flesh. So it's all a matter of perspective, right? I mean, who knows? But the point is, I think both sides were exaggerating quite a bit. Anyways, moving on. So the Romans did have a reason for trying to stir up anger at the Celts and especially the Druids. I mean, Tacitus wrote of how the Druids stirred up discontent and rebellion in 69 AD by singing songs of the destruction of Rome by the Celts in 390 BC, and then they would utter prophecies that the Celts would become masters of the world. So the Druids weren't simply religious leaders, they were also the centers of rebellion against Rome. And the Druids were a force to be reckoned with. I mean, Dion, from the 1st century AD, who was with the Alexandrian school, and actually he met with the Druids, which was unusual for people in the Alexandrian school, he had a lot to say about the Druids. And unlike many writers of the Alexandrian school who relied upon sources such as Caesar, and those sources, I think, were pretty biased, Dion spoke quite favorably of the Celts after having direct contact with the tribes. So that probably pushes things closer to Pliny's point of view rather than Caesar's point of view. But also keep in mind that 69 AD, so that's already after Druidism had been outlawed, so it was probably already in decline. We know he met with the Celts, but since Druidism was already outlawed, who knows how many open Druids he actually met with, you know? But I still think that chances are the facts are somewhere in the middle. Maybe not directly in the middle, maybe closer to Pliny's, but uh, especially since the whole wicker man thing, I'm totally not buying the wicker man that Caesar talked about. But at the same time, I mean, really, the white bulls with a golden hook, whatever. So anyways, back to Dion. One thing that he mentions in his account sticks out to me. He said that the Celtic kings couldn't plan or really do much of anything without the advice and consent of the Druids. Really, it was the Druids who ruled. So we're starting to see more and more why Caesar might have exaggerated his accounts for political purposes. 
And later, when Druidism was prohibited by Claudius in 54 AD, which, you know, was about 100 years after Caesar, but about 10 years before Dion, it's pretty clear it was probably for political purposes. And these terrifying images the Romans report of blood-soaked rituals were probably blown out of proportion. But at the same time, it is hard to discount the fact that we do have evidence of human sacrifice in Druidic areas. So if you ask me, it's a bit of column A and a bit of column B. I really doubt that the Druids were the idyllic fairy tale beings we've grown up hearing about, but I also doubt that things were as bad as the Romans lead us to believe. The Romans probably took advantage of some unsavory aspects of Druidic life, blew them out of proportion, and then used it as a justification for wiping out the rebellious Celtic intellectuals, erasing the Celtic heritage, and speeding up the Romanization of Celtic territories. Now, the takeaway from all of this is that religious life in Celtic Britain wasn't solemn. It wasn't pious. It was gory and scary and magical and boisterous and full of wonder. And it's still there if you know where to look. You have Beltane, May Day. You have Samhain, Halloween. And those are celebrated just about everywhere. There's mistletoe that you kiss under in Christmas. That's druidic. Those wishing wells that your kids toss coins into are Celtic and Druidic. You even get superstitious people telling you that bad news comes in threes. And triads. That's Druidic. The Druids aren't gone. Not entirely. They were just absorbed. And one way they were absorbed was through Celtic Christianity. Actually, many early Celtic saints might have been Druids. Even Pelagianism the theological theory that ran counter to St. Augustine's worldview seems to have had a lot in common with Druidic natural philosophy. And whether that's a coincidence or whether it was intentionally incorporated isn't really known. But what is known is that it caught on quite well in Celtic territories such as Britannia. So it seems that Druidism held on however it could. But it had to stay underground. After all, it was outlawed for pretty much most of modern time. And eventually, spurred on by a desire to reconnect to our ancient roots, people in the 17th century began to reinvent Druidism. But unfortunately, it isn't the same religion. The Romans were efficient, and the ancient intellectuals behind the throne, as well as their religion, were destroyed. Okay, well that's the episode on Druids. If you enjoyed that episode and you'd like to have access to more members' material, or if you'd just like to support the podcast because you like what I'm doing here and you'd like me to keep doing it, you can become a member over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All you have to do is go over there, click show your support, and select your membership option. After that, you're going to become a member, just like Sarah, Lauren, Burton, John, Victoria, and Gordon did. So if that's something you're interested in, please head over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and sign up. Okay, well, thanks for listening.